All right, well, do me a favor. Track down a Bible if you can and get with me to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. We're going to jump right into the time in the Word, and we're going to look at this story. We're doing a series right now called um, Faithful Living in Fearful Times. And the question, kind of the question that's kind of driving this whole thing is we're living through a cultural moment that is very challenging. We're living through a cultural moment with all kinds of different layers of complexity, um, with a pandemic, with an economic crisis, with relational tensions and strains. We're living through a moment in our nation that feels very fractured and divided. Uh, and my question has been, how are we as a church, how, are, how is the church, how are individual Christians supposed to respond to this moment? How can we be faithful in this season in a way that actually makes Christianity look very beautiful and very compelling. And I think that's what we're called to do. And so we're allowing the, the book of Daniel to really inform that because Daniel and some of his colleagues, were, they found themselves in Babylon, having been taken in exile to this land. And then the culture was trying to appropriate them. It was trying to squeeze them into its mold. And they were having to figure out what does it look like to be the faithful remnant in a, in a culture and in a society that is not set up to help people live as believers, but in many ways is set up in a way that's trying to prevent them from being faithful. So um, I, I've said for a long, long time that we're kind of moving toward this post-Christian experience in, in our nation, in our, in our lifetime, and in many ways it feels like the pressures of the pandemic and the division of politics and all of that has just kind of amplified all of that. So, so we are moving very, very quickly into these trends where I think it will be harder and harder to live faithfully. We will have less of that home team advantage, and we will have to think through what does it look like to live as the faithful remnant in fearful times. So Daniel chapter 3, I'm going to read um, portions of it. I'll actually start in verse 8, but in verses 1 to 7, you have the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, setting up this golden image and making a law that whenever music is played, Everyone in all the nation, not only the national individuals there, but also those that they have brought in, all the you know, exiles, all, all those people as well, all have to bow down and worship. Let's pick it up in verse 8. We'll read through um, verse 28 or so, 29, and then we'll pray and get to work. It reads like this. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.'" Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray right now as we've opened it together that you would speak over us, that you by your voice would help us to consider what it looks like to be faithful. Help us to be like these three men who experience a firm conviction to honor you and you alone and who are willing to risk everything for that, for your sake, God, for your glory, and who experience your nearness in the midst of trouble. Help us to believe that and experience that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we find here this cultural pressure in verses 1 to 15, and then we find their risky obedience there in 16 and following, and finally, we see them experiencing the reward of God in, in the end of the chapter there. So the cultural pressure in verses 1 to 15, the king is saying, I have built something and I'm decreeing, I'm commanding that everybody worship it. He sets up this image of gold and he uh, tells everybody that they must bow down to it. Look again at verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what that image of gold is, but as you look at the context, I, I'm convinced it has something to do with Nebuchadnezzar and his glory. In the previous chapter, what did he have a, a nightmare about? He had a nightmare that there was this statue and he was the head of the statue. That he was this, you know, kind of head of gold and this stat statue comes tumbling down and crashes and it causes him great anxiety. 
In the following chapter, in chapter 4, we'll find Nebuchadnezzar kind of looking out at, at his nation and just kind of puffing up his chest and going, look at all of this. Look at how awesome I am. There is no king like me. There is no person like me. And so when he sets up this image of gold, in my mind, it makes all kinds of sense that this is an image to his glory, to his gods, but ultimately to him. He sets it up and he makes it a law in the land that everyone must bow down. Look at verses 10 and 11. It becomes very clear here. It says, your majesty, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. In other words, the king has made this a royal decree that this is the law of the, the land, that if you're to live in Babylon and if you hear that music, you are legally obligated to fall down in deference, in worship of this image that he has set up. Now, there's a group of people called the Chaldeans, and when they find out that the Jewish individuals are not doing this, they are happy about it. In fact, they take a little jab at them, and the reason why is the Chaldeans are a part of this class of people who are wise men, and they have an obligation to kind of speak to the king and give, them, give the king counsel, give their impression of things that are going on, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had actually taken their job from them in a sense. Because of the blessing and the favor of God on them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up becoming very influential in the court of the king. And these Chaldeans, they don't like that. There's a resentment issue there. And so we find it in verse 12 where they're now speaking to the king and they say, there are some Jews whom you've set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Here's what's going on. That pressure, that cultural pressure is becoming very pointed. They're looking at these people and they're saying, look, if they're not going to follow the, the law of the land, we're, we're going to put it to them. We're going to make it known and we're going to see to it that they are properly punished for their um, disobedience in this case. And so verse 15 tells us, when the king is now speaking to them, he tells them, you better make the right choice here. You better follow suit of this decree that I have made. It says, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if not, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Okay, this is some pretty severe pressure. We're trying to figure out what does it look like for us to be believers in this day and age right now. But for them, this was a very specific reality. They either worshiped this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up or their, li their livelihood was at stake. They were going to not only lose their jobs, but they were going to lose their lives. And so we find here this pressure and it helps us then to think about the pressure that we might be experiencing in our day and age. What does it look like when Christianity is no longer the thing that's celebrated in our nation, but what if there's an, a growing hostility toward it? What if there are more and more people who say Christianity is something that we can't buy into and we're actually going to push back against it? We don't want it to thrive in our nation. And we want Christians to have to become more like the culture around us and we're going to try to squeeze them into this mold. And we have to be the kind of people who have a resilience to us 
and a commitment to God. Now, the text itself communicates to us in in a way that's pretty significant. It uses this repetition. We skipped over the first few verses, but if you look at it, there's this repetition where we're being told elements of the story and they're being repeated over and over again. It's a way for the writer to kind of indicate, hey, I want you to pay attention here. I'm trying to communicate something to you. And here's what I think it is. I think it's sarcasm. I think that as the story's being told, it's being told in such a way that you kind of go, okay, this writer is really trying to poke fun at the grandiosity of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. So what does it say? It tells us about all these rulers. There are satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all these other provincial officials. And then in the very next verse, verse 3, it says the exact same thing. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, it's, it's basically just kind of saying what appears so big and so impressive If you were to walk into that kind of courtroom and you see all of these different governmental officials and you're thinking to yourself, man, this is impressive. Look at all of these people. Look at all of these people who are a part of this program of what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. And then it tells us about the instruments and the music, and it does that over and over again. The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, over and over again. It's kind of just saying, look at all of this. The reader, look at all of this. And it keeps repeating it. And I think what the writer is doing is saying, what appears so big, so insurmountable, really isn't that impressive. What appears to be something that feels so big and insurmountable at the end of the day really isn't that formidable. It tells us over and over again that Nebuchadnezzar had to set this thing up. If you count it out, it actually shows up something like nine times. Nebuchadnezzar set up this image and forced everyone to worship it. Oh, and by the way, he had to set it up. And he gathered everyone together to play music, but he had to set this thing up. In other words... This thing is man-made. It might feel huge, a 90-foot image of gold. It might feel like this thing is just kind of going to eclipse us and overtake us, but at the end of the day, it is man-made. Nebuchadnezzar had to set it out there. There's a sarcasm here that's trying to communicate to us. Don't be so threatened by these pressures of culture that feel insurmountable. they, They really amount to nothing. They're really just man-made impositions on us. Over and over in the Bible, um, God takes opportunities to kind of mock idolatry. Isaiah 44 is a good example of it. Uh, God is speaking to one of the prophets, and he tells him, hey, consider this. Look at this. Doesn't this kind of just blow your mind? He tells Isaiah, there's a, a blacksmith who's fashioning idols, but watch how he does it. He chops down a tree, And then he gets tired and cold, so he takes a part of the tree and he makes a fire. And with that fire, he warms himself and he heats up a meal and he eats that meal. But with the remainder of the wood, he takes it and he carves it into an idol. And then he bows down to it and he worships it. And he prays to it, saying things like this, Save me, you are my God. And God is saying to Isaiah and to us and to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, how ludicrous is it that we look at things that are man-made, that we look at these different things and we think this is so powerful. This is like a God to us. This is 
salvation. This is the essence of what's going on here. There's a confrontation with the idols of Babylon. The idol of Nebuchadnezzar is this image of gold that he sets up, and he wants everyone to worship it. He wants everyone to pay respect to it, and he wants everyone to acknowledge the power of his leadership and the way of his nation. Now, we all experience idolatry even today. I know you might read this and think, well, this is just kind of old-fashioned stuff. I mean, who really is carving idols and worshiping idols anymore? Well, the issue isn't that, that image. The issue is the worship. Idolatry is a worship category. We're all, as Harold Best puts it, we're all unceasing worshipers. This is how God made us. We just constantly worship. The question then is, what is it that we're worshiping? What are the things that we really get excited about? What are the things that, get, that anger us when other people don't share in respecting those different things? We are all unceasing worshipers, and we're all dealing with, with idolatry. And so, I, I, this week I've been thinking, what, what are some of the idols of our culture? What are some of the things that we might be falling into in this moment? What are some of the things that we tend to worship and give our allegiance to? Because this is where the pressure of culture needs to be evaluated. What are the things right now that we feel like are trying to conform us into worshipers of something that is not God? So I reached out to a couple different people. I reached out to a Honduran pastor and I reached out to a Kenyan director of a ministry, both of which I've worked with, and they uh, routinely have teams of Americans coming in to assist them in their work. And I just said to them, hey guys, tell me honestly, what are some of the, what are some of the idols that Americans tend to have? And I won't be offended, I'm going to share it with, with my church, but I, I just want you to kind of weigh in on it. You guys are, you know... Uh, nationals in other countries who are working with Americans on a routine basis, you might see something that I don't see. And they both offered up lists, and they were pretty extensive, and I thought to myself, okay, none of this really surprises me, but it still, it stings a little bit to look at some of their observations of Americans and the things that we get excited about and the things that we kind of fall into worship of and the things that we get angry if they don't go our way, and they kind of both offered up a list. And now, I'm not going to share with you the list. I think that would be tedious. I want you to answer the question for yourself. What are some of the idols of our culture? And some good questions to help you think about that would be, what causes you to fall down in respect of it? That when, when that topic comes up, when that thing comes up, you just get excitable. You're like, this, this gives me passion. This gives me energy. I want to share this with other people. I want to talk about this with other people. I want to convince people of these different things. Or another question that we might ask is what gets us good and angry when other people don't share that passion or that excitement? And if you look at kind of the tone and the vibe of our nation right now, I think it becomes very evident the things that we're worshiping. Christopher Wright is the director of um, the various ministries. He's in Europe, and, and uh, he, he actually just published a book called Here, Here Are Your Gods. And he's looking at European culture and American culture, and he's suggesting there is political idolatry. You look at what people really care about, what, what people really get excited about, what people are willing to fight over, it, it tends to fall in that realm of politics. So I want to encourage you to think through what are the pressures right now that are squeezing you and saying, you better become like us. 
You better toe the line and say the right things. You better do what we're asking you to do. And, and again, in, in this moment, we're very divided. But we need to be careful of this idolatry. There is a cult cultural pressure that's being exerted right now, and I think Christians have to be different. We have to be different. So verses 16 and to, to 18 tell us about this risky obedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they look at that pressure that's being exerted on them. You will lose your life if you do not fall down in worship. And they say, listen up, we are not going to, we're not going to compromise here. We're not going to disobey God here. We're not going to change the way that we think about God and our worship of him. We are willing to disobey even if it means we lose our lives. Now, people have been asking me uh, over the last few months, at what point do we practice civil disobedience as a church? At what point do we just say some of the recommendations and some of the things that are being imposed upon us, maybe we just need to say we cannot obey those commands. We, we cannot follow in what people are suggesting that we need to do. So that is a, a great question. I'm not going to answer it right now in, it, in its entirety, but I will say this. One of the things when we consider civil disobedience, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of is civil disobedience. If it's to be done well, it has to be done civilly, with civility. You find here in the text, and I didn't see this until this week, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had tremendous respect for Nebuchadnezzar. They, they spoke to him in a way that honored him. They were careful in their speech. Look at verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They did not have a hostility about them. They were not angsty in the way that they communicated, but they carefully just firmly articulated their commitment to God. Verse 18, they, they say it like this, we want you to know your majesty. They're not saying we disrespect you and we're trying to dishonor you and we're trying to show you how foolish you are. No, there's a civility even about the way that they engage in civil disobedience. There, we need to be a people who are respectful even when we disagree. I've been reading a biography of a pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs. He's a Puritan pastor in Europe a long, long time ago, during the time in which um, church and state in Europe were intimately wed. And so Jeremiah Burroughs was a pastor during that time, and with the church and the state having this overlap between the two, in order to be a pastor, the state actually had to appoint you to your job. They had to determine the area that needed a pastor, and the state would appoint you there and give you this parish, give you this uh, responsibility over this particular church. He would also draw his paycheck, not from the congregation, but from the state. His paycheck would have the state signature on it. And so it was very intermingled, and, and the issue came up where the state was trying to get the church to do things that were violating the conscience of believers. And so there were people who were called nonconformists. They had to come up with um, things that they were unwilling to flex on. But here's the problem. If you're a nonconformist, it means that you are at odds with the, the people who are writing your paycheck. It means that you're at odds with the people who give you the ability to perform your work. Well, Jeremiah Burroughs was a nonconformist, and so when people found out that he was not doing these things that the state was requiring of him, they sent you know, government workers there to observe. And they did find out 
that he was not following suit in the way that they thought was appropriate. There's a gentleman named Clement Corbett, and he visited the church, and he began to dislike Jeremiah Burroughs so much. He was offended that Burroughs would not publicly do the things that were required of him, and so he began to ridicule and scorn Jeremiah Burroughs. He began to speak of him and his character and features of him, his inability to grow a beard, and he'd say all of these awful, awful things. And they ended up removing him from his position. They took, his, they took away his authority to be a pastor in this location. They took away his income. They took away all these different things. And now Burroughs is unemployed and unemployable. And he writes then, and I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on, how did, he, how did he handle this moment? What would it be like to lose your livelihood? What would it feel like to lose the ability to pursue your vocation and your calling? And here's what he said in one of his sermons. He said, we must love the truth, not only when we can live upon it, when we can get advantage by it, but also when it must live on us, when it must have our estates, our peace, our liberties. We must follow him when it means that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. There are going to be moments, Christians, where we have to determine that we're going to follow God even if it gets much harder that we're going to follow God and our convictions of what that looks like, even if it means things are going to get much, much worse for us. But then my question was, how did he feel about the government? How did, how did Burroughs feel about the government having lost his, his job and his church family? And he wrote this, and this is, this is really important for us because I don't think we're, we're doing a good job on this front. He said, Jeremiah Burroughs, in reflection of all of this, he said, if you murmur against those whom God makes instruments of governing because you've not gotten everything that you would like, or against the government itself, or against such and such who are public officials, that murmuring is against God. Jeremiah was pointing out that people who are in a position of authority are placed there by God himself. That's what we saw last week. God deposes kings and he sets them up, even the bad ones. And we have an obligation to recognize that the position that we're in in human history, Acts 17, the place that we're at in human history, we, we are here to honor God and to reflect God's glory. So we need to be careful about murmuring and complaining and, and scrutinizing public officials. And I thought to myself, okay, I appreciate that he wrote that in a sermon, but I'm a preacher. I can say the right thing. How did he really feel about it? What did he say when he was not preaching? What did he think about Clement Corbet when he wasn't in front of people telling them how they ought to behave? And what's interesting to me was his biographer could not even find a shred of contempt. The only things that he said about Clement Corbet were just factual information about what took place. So, church family, there is a pressure on us right now. We need to determine that we're going to be obedient to God come what may. But we need to do that in a way that is respectful, that is civil. And I think that by doing so, we actually make the good news of the gospel appear more beautiful. So they had a conviction, and it was to follow the first and the second commandments of God's law. Nebuchadnezzar was saying, here's the law of the land, and they were saying, we already have a law. We follow the law of God. We've been given this significant voice of God to us at Sinai. And the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall fashion no images 
and worship those images. And they said, listen, you can, you can tell us that we have to do that or we'll die, but we are going to follow the, the revealed will of God here. We're willing to do that. We're willing because we have these convictions. And that conviction is expressed with humility. Look at verses 17 and 18. They're not confident entirely of how this is going to shake out. So they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us, your majesty, from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. There's a tremendous humility about it. We are going to follow God, and we're not exactly sure how it's going to shake out. But we know a couple things. God is able to save us if that's what he wants to do. We trust him. We know that to be true. But even if he doesn't, we have our marching orders, and we're going to follow what God has revealed to us. So how do you get that sort of unwavering faith? How do you get that sort of commitment and resolve? And, um, and I've been wrestling with it a bit this week because I've not felt courageous. I've not felt this, you know, kind of steady confidence over the past couple of weeks. I've been discouraged by all kinds of different things, things with our church and things with individuals. And, and so I'm, I'm preaching to myself now, how would I become the kind of person who can perform this risky obedience? this commitment to God come what may. And Jeremiah Burroughs, again, he puts it like this. He says, we need to consider the reward. He says, I am afflicted and must endure hard things here. Yet this is that which upholds me through it all. He's talking now to God in prayer. He said, you shall afterward receive me into glory. How do we become unshakable Christians? We think about the reward that we have in store for us. We contemplate God God himself will be our portion. Burroughs puts it like this, heaven is beautiful, but more beautiful still is God himself. Christians need to be people who are constantly reflecting on, even if I, even if I were to lose my life, even if I were to be disadvantaged, if I were to lose my, my ability to perform work, if there were you know, things you know, legally that would prevent me from following my Christian convictions, Come what may, I'm going to follow God, and at the end of the day, I get him. He's my reward, and that is enough, and that will satisfy. Now, when Christians begin to have that sort of firm commitment in the things of God, it really is beautiful. The very end of the Bible describes it like this. is talking about all those who've experienced this sort of reality. Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There's a group of people who are triumphing over the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Here's, here's what it says. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. There's a kind of Christianity that says, I would lose my life for this. So finally, we see the fellowship with God, the experience of being rewarded with God himself in verses 19 to 30. When you are willing to follow God come what may, it doesn't mean that he's always going to save you from the fires of trial. In fact, Peter will later on write about it, and he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you're going through. He's writing to Christians, and he's kind of using the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story to say, this is normal. Don't be surprised by it. This is what we, what we experience as Christians. We suffer on account of our faith. So the obedience 
of faithfulness to God sometimes will actually bring us into the fire. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. So he is going to throw them into this fiery furnace. Verses 21 and following. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. So they are faithful to God, but what happens? They get thrown in. When you're faithful to God, it doesn't mean that he's always going to prevent you from going through hardship. What it means is he'll be there with you in it. You'll go into these incredible and challenging circumstances, but what do you find there? You find God. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. They're in the fire, and they're being spared. But not only that, something else is in there with them. Now, people kind of argue of whether or not it's an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord, meaning the pre-incarnate Christ there with them. Um, However you want to think about it, here's what God is saying. You're going to go into a fiery furnace, and you're going to find me because I'm there with you. My messenger or Jesus himself will be there with you. He will be there with you walking around in the fire, preventing you from even experiencing the singeing. They pulled them out and um, they said, look, these guys don't even smell like smoke, right? When you have a bonfire and you stand next to the fire for all of 30 seconds and you walk away from it and then you smell your garments, what does it smell like? A bonfire. But these men having been thrown into the fiery furnace come out and they're Hair is not even singed. Their clothes are totally fine. The guys who threw them in were torched, but these individuals were spared. And it's God saying, look, I can protect you. Look at verses 26 and 27. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. God was there with them, and he was looking after them in a very profound way. Now, that truth is something we have to believe. Now, not just for the the exceptional moments where we are spared from harm in a very severe way, like these guys, but throughout the history of the church, Christians have suffered for their convictions. And God has always done the same thing. He's shown up and he's provided for them, even when they lose their lives. I was reminded of uh, Polycarp. He He was a martyr. Uh, one of the Christians in, in um, the early history of the church. And he was an old man, but they arrested him and they brought him into an arena full of people who were, who were there as spectators to watch him 
get executed. And the proconsul was trying to convince Polycarp to renounce his faith. He's saying, look, just, you know, you are an old man. Just think about your old age and just renounce your faith. Just express your worship of Caesar and, you know, rescind your commitment to Christ, repent. And Polycarp replied in this way. He said, 86 years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? But the proconsul didn't like that response. So he persisted to try to convince him, come on, man, just, just look after yourself here. I'm trying to help you out. So then he begins to threaten him and he says, look, I've got wild animals here that'll tear you to pieces. And Polycarp was essentially like, I don't care. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to light you on fire then. And he kept trying to, you know, threaten him with these different things. And, and Polycarp just says, why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. So they begin to kind of bind him up and they're going to light him on fire. And he says to them, no, 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 you don't have to, you don't have to pierce me with nails. The Lord who has helped me this far will help me not to struggle without the help of those nails of yours. And so they put him there and they lit him on fire. And, and here's what's really crazy. You can read about this in church history. But something happened in that moment. He died. He was martyred for his faith. But there was something about the way in which the fire actually responded in that moment. It looked like an arch over him. People described it in that way. And the proconsul and Caesar and all these people were so mesmerized by what they were observing, the, the calm confidence of a person who had a persistent and resilient faith, willing to give up their life for their love for Christ. And they saw how this all transpired. And Caesar was so startled by it that he, he began to think, if we're not careful here, this whole arena is not only going to begin worshiping the resurrected Christ, they're going to begin worshiping him as well. And so they began to do some things to try to hurry this process along. That's the kind of resilience that I think is available to all of us, to be the kind of Christians who say, I'm going to follow Christ, come what may. Even if I have to give up my life, I trust that God will be with me and he'll give me exactly what I need in that moment. And that is how this story ends as well. They are faithful and they are spared. And so the king takes note, look at verse 28. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Now there is this public acknowledgement. There is a true God. And these individuals are representatives of his. And they have determined to have this resilient faith, and they were even willing to give of their own lives to express that, that worship and that gratitude toward God alone. Well, then the people are enlisted to worship. It's kind of ironic. There are some things going on in the story where at the beginning you're hearing about all this music and all these people and everyone from all the nations falling down in worship of this image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar set up. But then you get to the end of the story and all the peoples and all the music and all the officials and everyone, now they're to worship the true God. Verse 29, therefore, the king says, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is eating his words. Who could possibly save you from my God? I'm going to throw you in the fire, in the furnace, 
And who could possibly save you? And now he's saying, okay, everybody, don't say anything ill of the God of Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because no other God can save in this way. Now, he makes it a law, and it's actually kind of a shady way to enforce it. God has a different plan, but it's the same outcome. All peoples from everywhere will worship. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. We'll put it on the screen. It reads like this. Therefore, God exalted him, talking about Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So yes, all peoples from any nation or language are going to worship him, but we don't need a law for that. This is just what will come true when we see Jesus for who he really is. We will see him in all of his splendor and glory, and we will know he is Lord. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, on heaven and on earth and under the earth this reality. Jesus Christ is the God who can save in this way. And then verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Here's the conclusion then. They are experiencing the pressure of their culture to conform or die. And they determine we will follow God come what may. And with that resilient faith, they experience the blessing of God's own nearness to them. And so, church family, I want to encourage you, this is a season where we need to firm up what our convictions are. What are the things that we are unwavering in? That we say, I am so passionately committed to God that even if I would lose my job or my livelihood or my ability to pursue my vocation or even my life, I'm with him. I worship him, I serve him. I hope that we can be those sorts of Christians. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we need your help. The things that we're talking about here really are radical concepts. I mean, they're ordinary in the sense that we are, we are always making choices and we are always worshiping and so we need to determine where our allegiance truly is. But also, Lord, you've given us this vision of what it looks like to be faithful in fearful times. And, and we admit, I mean, at least I do, some of us don't feel up to the task. And so would you anoint us, Lord? Would you fill us with your spirit so that we can be calm and confident and, and um, be civil and respectful and kind and do all of that in a way that makes people see Our commitment is to you. There is no other God who can save in this way. You are our Savior. You've rescued us. You've rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fires of the furnace, but you have rescued us from the eternal fires of damnation. You are a Savior God. And so we worship you right now. And in a moment, we're all going to worship from the different places that we're tuning in. But Lord, we want to express our gratitude for who you are and what you've done in the sending of your son. We pray in his name. Amen.